This is an ABC podcast. Hack. Hey, it's Dave Marchese. Welcome to the Hack Podcast. Could China have been using security cameras to spy on Australian government officers? Look, it might sound crazy, but obviously the risk is big enough for our government to be ripping out hundreds of these cameras. So is it a big overreaction or have we dropped the ball with security here? We're going to get into this big story out of Canberra that's got politicians and officials scrambling. Also coming up, we're going to meet the young leaders taking their fight for better support for regional communities to Canberra. First, though. Hack. I should be out partying with my friends or doing whatever the hell I want to, like not being at home and in pain. On Triple J. When excruciating pain becomes an unbearable constant in your life, you'll try anything to get rid of it. But what if the last option you have left is to become infertile in your mid-twenties and still there's no guarantee that the agony is going to end? So many young Australians live with endometriosis. It's something we talk a lot about on Hack and they're making huge decisions every day, whether it's about surgery or giving up work. Is this you? How has endo impacted your life? I'm keen to know. You can call in 1300-0555-36. You can send a message in too, 0439757555. First, here's reporter Erin Semler. She's been speaking to those living with this chronic condition. There's a lot of like very sharp pains, but there's also numb pains that just stay there and ache at you the whole day headaches that are just debilitating and sometimes I just can't walk. Inez Goves is a high school art teacher in central Queensland but her everyday routine isn't the norm. I have to wake up, assess my pain, assess whether or not it's worth losing an entire day of pay and then I have to assess how, like, what painkillers I can take that day enough for me to be able to work because that is my favourite thing in the entire world. The 25-year-old has endometriosis. Inez had her first period at 11, started contraceptives for hormone control at 14 and was formally diagnosed with severe endometriosis at 18. So I was 20 when I got my first surgery and my endometriosis was on my uterus, my ovaries. Um, it had stuck my bowel and my uterus together so they had to pry it apart and like cut off all of the stuff in there. Still after that, they had me on contraceptives. Inez had a second surgery soon after her first one. Surgery results are unpredictable and aren't the same for everyone. I think I had like a year of being like what I call my free. I was free, like I was traveling, I did all of this stuff. I was able to get like four scholarships and go study in Italy and teach in Fiji. And I did all this like amazing stuff. And I loved that part of my life. When Inez came back to Australia, still pain-free, she bought a house and a therapy dog for her PTSD. But she started feeling super off again. My mental health was just going really bad and the hormones were just, like, killing my body. But Inez says her specialist pretty much gaslit her. He was like, no, it's not endometriosis, it hasn't grown back, blah, 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 blah. So her friend recommended another doctor. I had one 10-minute consult with him and he was like let's book you in for a surgery. The endo was affecting heaps of organs and this time the surgery didn't make her feel better. She was back on contraceptives and not feeling great. Inez was desperate for a solution. And I was like I'm ending up in hospital because I'm like suicidal because I'm in so much pain. 
So she was then prescribed an implant called Zolodex, which controls the production of certain hormones in the body. People who are on it long term or on like a high dose can start losing their hair and they can, and it, put, it puts you into menopause at 25, which I think is hilarious. If the implant doesn't really help things in the next couple months, her next option might be a hysterectomy. And obviously if I have to have a hysterectomy, I'll have a hysterectomy because pretty much like my choice is being in pain for the next 15 years until I can elect to have a hysterectomy um, or being in pain for the next however many years until I have a baby naturally, which could be like, we don't know. We don't know how long that would take. Or have a hysterectomy, hopefully be without pain, and then just adopt. But there's no guarantee surgery to remove the uterus will mean the end of her pain. There's just like so much uncertainty around it. And that's where I get really mad with modern medicine. Mike Armour is an associate professor in sexual and reproductive health at Western Sydney University. There is always work going on looking at especially repurposing other drugs to see if they're effective in endometriosis. Also, like I see a lot of work going into medicinal cannabis, for example, as a pain and symptom reliever. But really, it's most likely that until we fully understand what causes endometriosis, we're still going to be struggling to get, uh, you know, effective treatments. While there's been progress, he says there's still heaps more to be done. Endometriosis, you know, affects about one in nine women and those assigned female at birth in Australia. So, you know, has similar prevalence rates to things like diabetes. But up until recently, or even now, you know, only gets a fraction of the funding. Um, and so more funding is really what we need because all of this research costs money. Unable to do the job she loves because of intense pain, Inez has just been forced to put her house up for rent and move back in with her parents. There still aren't good options for women. Like, I'm 25 and I have to make these decisions myself. Like, I should be out partying with my friends or doing whatever the hell I want to, like travelling, which I can't do, or, yeah, like that sort of stuff. Not being at home and in pain. Hack on Triple J. Erin Semler reporting there, and you can read more about Inez's story on the ABC News website. And remember, if you need some support, you can check out Endometriosis Australia. I'm keen to know what huge impacts endos had on your life. You can message in 0439 757 We're already hearing from so many people. And every time we talk about endometriosis, we do because we know it's having a big impact. Someone says, Mads in Canberra, I work in an all-male environment. It's been hard to explain why I miss so much work due to endo. It took a long time to get diagnosed and I've lost so much money from having time off. Let's go to a caller now. Sarah's on the line. Hey, Sarah, what's been your experience? Hey, so my experience hasn't actually been positive. I mean, over the last 12 years, I've been in and out of hospital with pain and every time I've gone to the hospital, they just kind of gaslight you and it's exactly like the, um, like the article. It's just like you con- continuously go and you're like, okay, it's going to be fine and then they'll be like, doctors, medical professionals are like, no, it's just in your head. So then you actually start to believe that there's something like psychologically wrong with you when it's actually just a physical reaction that your body's going through. And it was only because last year I had private health insurance that I went, no, enough is enough. I'm going to pay for some 
one to actually give me the proper answers. And yeah. it turned out I had stage four endometriosis when they were like, oh, no, you don't actually have endometriosis at all. Sarah, so, it's, it's something that we're hearing from so many uh, people on the text line now, people saying, I you know, was convinced um, and told for years that I didn't have it, and then I found out that I did. Hey, thanks so much for calling. Let's speak to someone uh, who's been through a lot of this, who knows a lot about this area of research, advocacy, uh, education. Sil Friedman is co-founder of Endoactive. It's a group raising awareness, also a clinical educator with Pep Talk. She's with us now. Hey, Sil. Hey. Thanks for coming on. Um, Can you explain what Pep Talk is firstly? Um, Because you're involved in education, right? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, PEP Talk stands for the Periods, Pain and Endometriosis Program. It's an initiative of the Pelvic Pain Foundation of Australia, who I also uh, work for. So wear a few different hats. Um, and the funding for this uh, education program has actually come out of the National Action Plan for Endometriosis. So um, PEP Talk is a schools program. We deliver to community groups as well. Essentially, you know, trying to explain to kids at school the difference between what's normal and what's not so normal when it comes to pain, which is something that we're not across, introducing them to endometriosis, introducing them to self-management techniques um, and different ways that they can manage their pain. Which is so important because as we're hearing right now, people are wanting more information and have been without information for a long time. We just heard Inez's story and we're hearing from listeners now Uh, people are making really hard decisions in their life. Like at times when, you know, they should be pretty carefree and not thinking about uh, the future of their fertility or whatever, they're having to make these big decisions. How big is the mental anguish that can come from living with endo? Oh, enormous. I mean, uh, we're faced with this conflicting misinformation a lot of the time. You know, people, um, myself included, have been told, you know, on the one hand, have a hysterectomy, but on the other hand, have a baby to cure your pain or, um, you know, or or go on the pill. Um, There's, it's a lot of conflicting advice and it is very confusing. I want to be clear that also um, having a baby isn't a cure for endometriosis. Um, There actually isn't a cure right now, but there, there are lots of different treatment options. We've got some messages coming through. Someone says, I'm a teacher also and balancing painkillers and being able to work hard to continue to do it affects your mental health every time you have a flare up. Gemma in Byron Bay, I got diagnosed a couple of years ago, had two surgeries, have had no relief from my pain. I'm now on medicinal cannabis to try and help, but I can't drive with this. So it's almost impossible to help pain. Another person, um, I had endometriosis. The pain was so bad that I would faint. I had to resign because I couldn't work anymore. This is a huge thing, Sil, the financial impact on people is crazy. And maybe that's something we don't hear enough about either, that you're waking up in the morning and having to make a decision whether you can go to work or not. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think most, uh, many people with endo have experienced losing jobs because of um, being, you know, unreliable or not being believed due to their pain. We know that um, a report that uh, Endoactive and Ernst Young did a couple of years ago, we know that there's an economic impact in, in Australia of $9.7 billion per year. Um, That's that, crazy. That endo has. And that, that equates to 24 to $26 million a day day. That's enormous. And then when you hear about the funding, obviously governments are pumping money into this, which is great news. We want governments to be doing that, but does it match the actual cost to the economy? That's the real question. When the answer is no, let's go to a, another caller. Maddie's on the line. Hey, Maddie, what's been your experience? 
Um, it has taken me a really long time to eventually even get diagnosed. I was told since I was 12 years old, I'm 25 now, that I had PCOS. Um, finally, I got diagnosed back in 2018 and I've had four surgeries since then. I've had invalidating experiences with private specialists, major wait lists delays, I've been on multiple contraceptive pills, mm. I've had a marina inserted, uh, most recently I saw a new specialist last Tuesday and he put me on a contraceptive pill that made my heart rate go up to 130 when I was resting. So I had to make a decision rather about um, my health compared to my managing my endo. Yeah. And and that and and that's that's the thing that we're hearing. It's these constant decisions and conflicting medical advice. Sometimes you hear something from one doctor, hear something else from another doctor. Maddie, thank you very much. We've got more messages coming through. They're pouring in at the moment. Someone says, you know, I'm in so much negative sick leave because of this condition. Most people do not take endo seriously. Uh, you're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese speaking with Syl Friedman from Endoactive and who also is an educator with Pep Talk about young people living with endo, the tough choices they're being forced to make to deal with the pain every day. Syl, there have been big funding announcements from the government, you know, over the past year, millions of dollars to set up specialist clinics and those sorts of things. Is the funding going to make much difference? Look, it's already making a difference. Um, so the funding has come under the National Action Plan, which a bunch of uh, groups um, with patients' interests at heart, you know, we came together and lobbied government together and that was fantastic. Under the plan, um, we, you know, we've managed to acquire many millions, um, but it isn't enough. It needs to continue. Um, you know, we've got a $16.4 million investment um, uh, that Assistant Minister for Health Jed Carney has confirmed um, in establishing uh, endometriosis and pelvic pain GP clinics to improve women's access to specialised um, uh, support in primary health care. But, you know, in one per state isn't enough. We yeah. need heaps more. We need places to go f- specifically for women when they're, you know, oh, sorry, sorry for people with uh, pelvic pain and endometriosis yep. when they are having a pain flare, that's not necessarily going to be within work hours, you know, um, having them always turning up to emergency and not always getting the care that they need on the spot. Um, you know, we need a multidisciplinary uh, approach to, to healthcare and for, you know, all parts of the community, patients, doctors, uh, uh, teachers, um, employers to all have a really good understanding of endo um, so that everybody can, you know, get the care that they need. Just quickly, Syl, because we don't have um, too much time left, but I imagine in the years you've been looking at this, um, covering this, that you've probably seen a change in the way people are talking about it, employers, politicians. Is that right? Huge shift. So when I first started talking about endo as a patient um, eight years ago, most people had never heard of it, mm. myself included, yeah, when I was wow. diagnosed, never heard of it at 21. Um, now, that generally, I find that people have heard of it, they have a basic understanding, um, but they might not understand the impact that that has on somebody's life. Yeah, it's so true. Look, we appreciate your insight into this. And everyone who's messaged in, thank you very much. It's hard to share these experiences. It can be really traumatic. Syl Friedman from Endo Active and from Pep Talk, thank you so much for coming on Hack. So these two companies are closely linked to the Chinese Communist Party. They are directly involved in the surveillance and repression of Uyghurs and other minorities. On Triple J. You know, right now, there's probably a bunch of people working overtime to rip out hundreds of security cameras from government buildings. 
Why are they doing that? Because the cameras were made by a company with links to the Chinese government. And audits found more than 900 of these cameras in government buildings, including defence and foreign affairs, also in places like the War Memorial. The opposition's been hammering the government on this, saying it's a national security issue. The government said it's removing the cameras. How big of a deal is this? Could there be something sinister behind it all, or has it been blown completely out of proportion? Let's ask an expert. Dr Samantha Hoffman's a senior analyst at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, and she's with us now. Dr Hoffman, thanks so much for joining us on Hack. Thanks for having me. How likely do you think it is that these cameras were being used to spy on Australia? Hard to say um, because I would have to know more about the specific cameras and what their capabilities are. But uh, generally speaking, I think that there are enough indicators about both Hike Vision and Dahua to tell us that Australian government shouldn't be using those cameras on their premises. So they're the companies that uh, manufacture the cameras. Do we know what the link is with the Chinese government? Both companies have a number of links with the Chinese government. For one, both have been found to be providing surveillance equipment for Chinese policing and surveillance, including uh, extremely coercive applications of that in places like Xinjiang, but also Both companies have party committees. Both companies say on their privacy policies, including their English language privacy policies for overseas users, that data collected from their products could be sent back to China and used for national security and um, public security policing purposes. I also know that uh, both companies are involved in helping to develop standards for the development of things like facial recognition systems in China that are used to target ethnic groups such as the Uyghurs who who have been targeted in in these horrible campaigns by the, the Chinese party state. And I was reading that the US and the UK have already banned these cameras at government locations. Do we know much else about, um, you know, they're spread overseas? Both companies have a huge presence overseas, and I think especially perhaps growing in, in emerging markets. But both companies provide reasonable products at very low cost compared to other companies. We know that they're they're used globally and, and, and oftentimes by governments and government buildings. Dr. Hoffman, are you able to explain um, the laws in China that mean the government there can take data from any company? Is that right? The, the one issue with, and this applies not just to Hike Vision, Dahua, Huawei, who you've heard a lot about, um, but any any PRC technology company, any company actually is, is required to follow state security legislation. And those can range from the national security law or the national intelligence law and, and others where um, the intelligence law, for instance, says that companies must participate in intelligence operations if requested, and they must keep their participation a secret. And the national security law and and cybersecurity law and others just sort of do similar things that put demands on companies. And while many companies have claimed that they would say no to such demands, the fact of the matter is, is that they can't legally, nor if they want to continue operating within the PRC, can they? And in, and even their privacy policies, as mentioned before, say that in, in their privacy policies that your data collected, even if it's in Australia, uh, can be transferred to the servers that are held overseas, including in China. And that would be kept private unless otherwise demanded by um public security authorities in China. Um, I'm paraphrasing, but essentially that's that's what the privacy policies state. Um, so even the companies admit 
that, that that's a risk. That's so interesting. And people may not even realise that, um, you know, when when they're signing up to things or, or whatever it is. And this this is the same concern I think people had with TikTok, right? Yeah. And and another thing to point out is that companies like Dahua and, and, and High Vision, they are also original equipment manufacturers. So their products could be embedded uh, or used for by other companies, but you wouldn't necessarily notice that if you're looking at the outside casing of that of that product. There's also a question about who their suppliers are. So who who are the technology companies that supply Huawei or High Vision and, and Dahua? Um, they can also be directly linked to the state, and maybe you don't need a request for access to data because maybe data is already going back to the state through default of that that company's supply chain. Which there's so many concerns here uh, that go beyond just the law and the application of the law in China. You're listening to Hack. I'm Dave Marchese. I'm speaking with Dr. Samantha Hoffman from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute about security cameras being removed from Australian government buildings. This story out today after revelations the companies making the cameras have links to the Chinese government. Dr. Hoffman, do you think Australia needs to be taking this stuff more seriously? Like it seems like we're on the back foot here. Absolutely. Australia should be taking this issue very seriously, but but it's not just these two companies. It's not just TikTok or Huawei either. There, there are hundreds of companies within the PRC that are designing products that by default of um, how they're being designed, by default of the sort of laws that, that Chinese companies are, are required to abide by that create vulnerabilities uh, for over overseas users. And so the question even goes beyond specific companies to the uptake of the technology themselves and, and the risks associated with any internet connected device and, and who ultimately has control of that data or access to that data. Um, because it's not just the end user, whether that's the Department of Defense, the, the War Memorial or whoever might be using those cameras, it's also whoever has access to that data downstream. You're an expert in how China uses technology to gain political and social control. It's such an interesting area of research, I would think. Are there other ways that China is using tech for these reasons? Is it? Are we finding a lot more out about this? So I think the one thing to understand about the way that the Chinese state thinks about technology and its application in this includes surveillance technologies is that technology can solve many problems at once. So if you look at the way that the smart cities in the PRC, which tend to be, you know, it's any any sort of smart technology uh, device that's used to perhaps by officials to improve the quality or delivery of, of public goods or public services. But at the same time, the data that is collected from those devices can help contribute to other things such as coercive security or it's a coercive controller or any other any other sorts of uses. So when we think about the way the party state uses technology, it's actually um, they're thinking there are multiple uses for the same device. And some of those could be normal in the way that any government would want to use them. And some of them more coercive. Right. So the primary use may not be sinister at all, but you know, there, there are several uses. I'm wondering, could the government removing these cameras here in Australia have a diplomatic repercussion? Like could Australia offend China and, and, and something happen there? I suppose it could, um, and it probably will, but it doesn't mean that the Australian government should change its policies in fear of how China might react. I think that for a very long time, governments around the world have um, tried to 
shift the way they talk about critical issues with China um, to avoid sort of the economic or political fallout. But the reality is those decisions have also allowed China to um, to advance its policies that undermine our own interests. So I think doing what is in Australia's national security interest should be the number one uh, priority um, and then managing the fallout comes after that. That's really interesting stuff. I know we'll be hearing a lot more about this story, but we appreciate uh, your insight and expertise in this area. Dr. Samantha Hoffman from the Australian Strategic Policy Institute, thank you very much for coming on Hack. Thank you. Hack on Triple J. And some messages coming through. Someone says, I think this is the tip of the iceberg with the Internet of Things. Read privacy policies. Another person, Daniel, says spyware can be built into the hardware microchips themselves. Most of the microchips are made in China. Hey, there's a lot of comments coming through. It's time to move on, though. Hack. My project is an arts and culture program called YAS, Young, Authentic and Social, for LGBTQIA plus and other marginalised youth. On Triple J. Hey, we love bringing you stories from regional Australia. So many of you are listening from places outside the cities. And obviously, great living in the country, huge advocate for the country right here. But there are also specific issues affecting young people in regional Australia. And it's pretty rare to get the opportunity to be able to take those issues and ideas directly to those in power, to the big shots in Canberra. 13 young Aussies have been able to do that this week. They're talking real issues, things like suicide, mental health, disability, inclusion. They're part of the ABC's Trailblazer program for young people who are doing inspiring things in their regional communities. Let's meet one of them now. Carly Heiss is from the central coast of New South Wales. She's queer, a youth worker, a drag king, and she's with us right now in our Parliament House studio. Hey, Carly, welcome to Hack. Hi, Dave. I'm so excited to be talking to you. Oh, we're excited to have a drag king on hack. That's awesome. (laughs) It's pretty cool. It's pretty cool. (laughs) It's pretty cool. You've had a busy week, right? And a busy day, especially. Can you explain what you and the other trailblazers have been doing? Yes, I can. Um, We have all been flown in from all across the country. Um, We arrived on Monday night and have been visiting government departments, networking with really cool, important people, um, hanging out with the ABC Haywire team a lot and preparing to speak in Parliament, which is what we did this morning. So how did it go? How was the addressing Parliament? Oh, it was really exciting. I think all of us arrived and were overcome with pride um, that we got to, yeah, be in Canberra and be in Parliament House and speak to 120 decision makers and change makers about the things that we care about from our regional area. You're setting up, or you have set up, sorry, an arts program for young people in your community. I love the name. It's called YAS, which stands (laughs) for Young, Authentic and Social. What do you do? We do a lot of stuff, um, but mostly it's about celebration for marginalised youth. So we run creative workshops, um, dance parties, and also a social group for LGBTQIA plus and other marginalised youth. My young people are actually in their social group right now. I'm I'm missing out on the first one back for the term. Oh, really? They might be messaging in. in They might be messaging (laughs) into Hack actually because we got a few messages that are really people who are big fan of you, Carly. Someone says, oh, we wow. love you, Carly. Waiting Hi, for you at the my pub. my gorgeous, yes, young people. Oh, that's not my young people, Dave. That's the rest <laughs> of the trailblazers at the pub. <laughs> so funny. Listen, you are talking about, um, you know, queer inclusion in regional communities. How big of an issue is that in, in your opinion? 
I mean, speaking personally from my own experience, um, I had to leave my regional hometown to discover my identity um, as a queer person. And I think that that's a story that a lot of, of people um, can relate to. And what I envision and dream is that diverse regional young people don't actually have to leave their hometowns and move to a city to live a fulfilling life and not be afraid to be themselves in their hometown. You know what? We're going to be diving into a lot of these issues with World Pride kicking off in Sydney next week. It's going to be a big moment and on Hack we're going to be talking a lot about issues affecting uh, the LGBTQIA plus community. I imagine you're pretty excited for Pride. Absolutely. I'm stoked. Um, we will be in the Mardi Gras parade this year. Um, a whole bunch of coasties on the Coastal Twist Festival float, including some of the amazing young people that I work with at Yas and their proud parents. So it's going to be a really surreal experience and I'm probably going to cry the whole day. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> hey, Carly, one thing that you're also committed to is the ABC. Someone told me you've got a tattoo of the ABC logo. What's going yeah. on with that? Dave, look, um, I have had a big day and it's included going to Parliament, quickly racing off for some lunch, getting an ABC logo tattoo and now I'm talking to you. Hey, that is a huge day. I don't know whether I have the same commitment as you, but I appreciate your commitment. Carly Heiss, thanks so much for your time. Thank you so much, Dave. It's been a pleasure. Hack on Triple J. And that's all we've got time for on the Hack podcast for now. I'll be back with the Shake Up tomorrow. Catch you then.